January, I said that this semester was going to cover up through um, Romans 3.20. Now, I think you know that the, um, the division of the New Testament into chapters is done purely for your convenience. And so to stop at the end of chapter 2 really is to interrupt the argument. Um, but the beginning verses of chapter 3 are a kind of an, another part of this argument that Paul is uh, conducting in chapter 2. Now, I, I hope I've been not confusing you, but the, but the point is, there is a sense in which you'll get a, a, a greater appreciation of, the, of what Paul has done in chapter 2 by being here tonight, I think, because uh, the verses 25, beginning at verse 25 tonight and going through the end of the chapter, is the last um, phase of the argument. It is the last, it's the capstone of his argument. And, and I hope you will recall that th this chapter uh, is designed by Paul to try and answer arguments of Judaism um, against the notion that they are to be included in the judgment that is awaiting. Uh, that is, in the, in the mind of the Jew, he thought, yes, I understand that that judgment that you described, Paul, is certainly going to include those Gentiles and they deserve it, but not us Jews. And Paul has gone through a multifaceted, multifaced uh, argument to try and convince his audience, his Jewish audience, that, oh yes, you need to understand that you too are included in what I said about the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness. Gentile ungodliness? Yes. But you too, um, my Jewish brother, uh, you too are included in the sweep of this condemnation. And, and, and this argument is what, what is known as an ad hominem argument. It's an argument, uh, a Latin phrase which simply means to the man. He's trying to preclude the arguments that Judaism can offer. Well, you know, we're not getting this because, as you know, we, um, well, we have this and this and this and this. Well, this last portion, I think, will make it the whole argument somewhat clear. At least I hope it will. Let's, let me read the text first. <coughs> I'm um, just about over whatever it was that gripped me, but if I cough on you, um, do forgive me. I did get a shot in my high knee this afternoon, and, and I'm doped up with all kinds of drugs. So uh, um, this alcoholism has been a terrible thing to fight. <laughs> just a joke. Um, verse 25, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Gang, this is a genius at work. Um, Paul comes to the final piece of his argument what for a Jew would be the last bastion of his defense. 
That is, okay, Paul, we've understood argument phase one and argument phase two and argument phase three and argument phase, phase four, five, and six. But Paul, do you not understand? We are circumcised. Thinking that that would deliver them and would be the thing that would um, exempt them from this display of God's judgment and wrath on ungodliness. So Paul, in knowing how the Jewish mind thinks, addresses this issue of circumcision, which for the Jew was their last line of defense. So now he's going to yank that rug out from underneath them. Now, my point is, guys, I hope you've seen, that's what he's been doing this whole chapter. This is just the clearest piece of, um, to me, the, this, the clearest phase of his argument. He's been doing this the whole chapter by saying, oh, I know you're thinking this, but that's wrong. And I know you're thinking this, but that's wrong too. And if you're thinking that, you shouldn't think that because that's wrong. And if you think that circumcision is going to deliver you, you've got another thing coming. And that's what he does here in verses 25. And the argument is just it's just brilliant. I mean, it's just, it's slam dunk. There's nothing more to be said after Paul gets through with them. Um, Jews were just convinced that the thing that would ultimately deliver them is their circumcision. Because as you know, they were the only ones ever given it. Uh, nobody else. I mean, Egyptians weren't circumcised. I mean, it was just us Jews. And it, there is a strange sense that because circumcision preceded the law, the idea is, okay, then Abraham, in one sense, is more important than Moses, so our circumcision um, allows us to conclude that the law is some kind of Johnny-come-lately, we have already been uh, ushered into this thing because we have been given this thing called circumcision. Um, and, and in essence, Paul is addressing this mentality, uh, a mentality that says, Paul, are, are you telling us that after God sovereignly brought into being a nation and then gave them the sign of circumcision, are you telling us that he would now condemn them? <laughs> and that's exactly what Paul is addressing. Listen, my friend, don't seek to hide behind the fact that you are circumcised. Paul's reply is, in these, in these verses, <coughs> <coughs> Pardon me. His reply is <clears throat> that circumcision is of no value whatsoever if the law is not kept. Look at it. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you do not keep the law, you might as well be uncircumcised. Because, gang, circumcision in and of itself, has no intrinsic, it has no inherent value in and of itself. <clears throat> oh yes, God does indeed have a people, but their distinguishing characteristic is not circumcision. Oh my indeed, yes, 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 He has a people. But those people are not the ones that are distinguished by having been circumcised. No, no. The distinguishing trait of God's people 
is that they are obedient. That's who his people, that's how you can spot his people. God does have a people, but holiness, holiness is their earmark. Not this right, R-I-T-E, this right of circumcision. Verse 26, therefore, if any uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not this, his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? You see, he's saying the same thing, although verse 26 is a little bit more controversial because there have been those who would suggest, go back and look at it, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, and then there are those who are suggesting that, ah, the, the unre unregenerate, the unconverted, the pagan man can keep the requirements of the law. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Paul is speaking here hypothetically. You will notice the if. if an un he is speaking theoretically. Um, and, and not trying to say that anyone has or ever could keep the law. But if indeed, uh, hypothetically, if they could, is the thrust, then his circumcision or his uncircumcision will be turned into a, a circumcision. Because the real issue, you see, is not whether you've had this right of circumcision, but have you, are you determined to be obedient? And then in verse 27, much again the same, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are transgressors of the law? Again, Paul speaks hypothetically, theoretically. If indeed someone who was physically uncircumcised could fulfill the law, you know what, Mr. Jew? He would be your judge. Because you have the law and you have the, the circumcision, but you're a transgressor of the thing. The, the one that you condemn and look down your, your Jewish nose at is the one who would rise up on judgment and condemn you. Not because he was circumcised or even uncircumcised, but because he was obedient. And then what you get in verses 28 and 29 is a summary of the argument of the whole chapter. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is, un nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Gang, there's a sense if you are a truster of Jesus Christ in this room tonight, you are a Jew. Now, uh, uh, the term here is being used. Does God have a people? Do you want to be a part of God's people? Then I'll say, uh, it is not, you are not a part of God's people outwardly, nor is the circumcision that he's interested in one that is something that is done outwardly in flesh. No, no, no. For the one who is really one of God's people is one who is that inwardly, that circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Um, not in the letter, not in the, not in the, the, uh, the, the performance of the right, R-I-T-E. Um, you know, guys, when people come to ask about baptism, that is, baptism of their infants, they, um, before, they, before they come before you on Sunday morning, they've got to come see me. 
Because, uh, you know, there's, the last thing in the world I want to do is usher our people into a, an occasion of hypocrisy, that they're up there in some kind of um, liturgical, traditional uh, nonsense that they don't understand, and we just walk through this because the church said we're supposed to do it. So I try to explain to them what this thing of baptism is. And I always start out this way. Now, if you've never come to see me over this issue, now you can, you can get the inside skinny. I always say, we'll start with this question. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? And they all rock back and say, oh, wait, wait, oh, no. <laughs> no, sir, Dr. Young, you don't have to be baptized. <laughs> and I say, oh, yes, you do. What? I thought you, I thought I'd been listening to your preaching correctly. I, I, I didn't know what you were saying. Maybe they were in the wrong church here. What are, what are you saying? You have to be I said, wait, 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 wait just a second. Before you leave the church, do you have to undergo the sacrament of baptism to be saved? No. But do you have to undergo the reality to which Baptism points. Yes. And that's what Paul is saying here. The circumcision is not one that is done on the outside. That's not the thing that's going to be, that, that indicates you're a child. It's, it's, the, it's the reality to which that symbol points. That is the thing <coughs> that, that makes you a child of God. Maybe I should add this. Ladies and gentlemen, baptism, uh, the baptism of the New Testament is a baptism that points to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when I'm saying you don't have to undergo the sacrament, no, 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 you don't have to do that thing that I do with water. No, 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 you don't have to have that. But the reality to which that thing is pointing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you've got to have that. And that's Paul's argument here. It's not, it doesn't matter that you are circumcised on the outside. The question is, have you been circumcised? The thing that will make you a, a Jew indeed is that circumcision of the inside, the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And, and that is his argument here, this, this last little clause about whose praise is not from men but from God. The, the Jew boasted uh, a, a lot about externals, and, and they, were, they were recognized and praised for their externals. And um, there, there is a statement that Jesus makes. Don't turn here. Let me, let me just read it to you, because it's just it's so terribly searching. Listen to this. Um, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Well, the, the, the thing is, uh, my, my, the point is, the Jews boasted in all that stuff that was so esteemed among men. They loved that stuff. And Jesus says that stuff is an abomination in the sight. You know, it doesn't take much to impress men. Put a Mont Blanc pen in their pockets and a Rolex watch on their hands and put them in a fancy car and the rest of us are really impressed. That's about all it takes. But you must understand, ladies and gentlemen, that that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination before God. Um, their praise 
they loved the stuff they got from men, which was so characteristic of those who were unconverted. Now, I have uh, about 16 minutes left, and I want to do something with you that, um, that, that I do by way of application. Because, ladies and gentlemen, if we want to avoid the mistake that is being described here in the entirety of Romans 2, if we want to escape the, the mistake of, of, of the Jew of the first century, and perhaps the Jew of, of the 20th century, we must be willing to ask ourselves some questions. We must be willing to ask ourselves some, we must be willing to examine ourselves. And to that end, I have a series of questions that I, I would like for you to use as, as an opportunity to simply, as we all seek to avoid the, the blindness that is outlined in, in Romans 2, um, because this is, really, what I, my questions are going to be a summation of the argument of Paul in Romans 2 because they address the mistakes and the errors of the Jew that he's addressing here. Here we go. Are any of us relying upon, for our redemption and, and salvation, are we relying upon our nationality? That is, we are a part of a Christian country, uh, at least it used to be, uh, is there anyone who would be so foolish as to rely upon your nationality as the Judaism for your deliverance? That one is fairly rare among us, perhaps. Are any of us relying upon our baptism as our means of deliverance, as did the Jew who relied on his circumcision. I wanted to take this opportunity to impress you, but here's a piece of theological nomenclature that I hope that you will take away. Um, it, it, it probably won't do you any good unless Regis Philbin asks this question to you on his show. But there is a Latin phrase that describes the operation of sacraments, and it's called ex that's an E. Up here. Operato. That is a, that, that's a Latin phrase that says that the sacraments do not work in and of themselves. There is no grace being transmitted in a sacrament. There is nothing being conveyed in a sacrament itself. Its value is to be found in that to which it points, the reality to which it points. So, ladies and gentlemen, sacraments are ex operato. They have no intrinsic, inherent value. I say that to ask you this again. Is there anyone so benighted that we are trusting in our baptism to provide redemption and release? Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is no grace 
transmitted in the sacrament itself. Are any of us relying upon church membership? You know, ladies and gentlemen, we do everything that we can to present the gospel to people who join our church. We go over it, as you know, in the new members class, the first hour. It's, maybe that was so long ago for you. Some of you, you don't remember, but that's what we do the first hour. I share my testimony, <clears throat> and I tell that story about Jim Kennedy coming to visit me and, and sharing the gospel that I had never heard before. Uh, after that, you remember the cards that we have people sign because we want them to be able to face themselves with, with their own replies to the two questions, the two diagnostic questions. Not only, and then from there, if people want to join the church, as you know, you've all been through it if you're a member here, the, um, there is a, an interview required, at which time those two questions are asked again. And people are confronted all over again with, are you trusting in Jesus Christ and nothing else? All of that to say this, you can fool us. We can't see hearts. Bob Wood, which is, who has done probably 90% of the interviews in this church, as precious a brother as he is, he can be fooled. So can I. Are any of you, any of us, so confused that we are relying upon church membership to deliver us? Fourthly, this is probably rare among evangelicals, but it is not rare among Roman Catholics, and I bet you Tom Bonanno could tell us this is true. Are any of us relying upon the taking of the Lord's Supper? Uh, again, in Roman Catholic circles, the idea is, I've got to go to Mass. And that means, of course, participating in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, or whatever term you'd like. But would any of us <coughs> be so far afield that we would trust in the fact that we are participating in the Lord's Supper? Two more. Are any of us relying upon our familiarity with evangelical terms? We know about inspiration. We know about glorification. We know about atonement and redemption, and we know about Passion Week. We are conversant with, with all kinds of evangelical terminology and are not intimidated in conversations about those things. Is anybody so confused that it is our knowledge and awareness of evangelical terminology and some of the concepts those, those terms represent is that what we're relying on? If so, ladies and gentlemen, it is the mistake of, the, of Judaism in different garb. And then finally, and perhaps the most searching of all, I think, are any of us, <coughs> are any of us relying on our faith? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if you are, it will never save you. Gang, one of the things that I see so 
prevalent in 20th, 21st century evangelicalism is what is known as fetism. It is faith in faith. And ladies and gentlemen, that will not deliver you from the wrath to come. If your only reply is that I have faith, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is a very scary reply and response. It may come from poor training. <clears throat> it may come from ignorance. I, I, I don't know, but I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, if you are relying on the, the fact that you have faith, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is not Christianity. That is fetism. And it is nothing more than another brand of salvation by works. I am saved because I exercised faith. No, ladies and gentlemen. No. You know, we have a little card in the new members class that we, that we hand out. Remember, it's got those two questions. If you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven. And uh, they answer yes or no. And then the, the second question is, uh, and imagine you were to die tonight and you stood before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And then they, they fill in those blanks. And I say, take that card, sit on it, put it in your Bible, stick it in your purse. I'll not look at it. But you, you know what you've written down there. It's all yours. I'll not tamper with it. I'll not violate it. You know, it's all right there. But I share my testimony about all that stuff at Tennessee and all that business and um, work in somehow that I was on scholarship on baseball. And, um, um, and, and then I talk about moving to Florida and Jim Kennedy coming to visit me and, you know, sharing the gospel with me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I always conclude by saying, now let's think about your card. What did you write on there? Now, you don't have to use my language. You don't have to say the very things that I said in the previous 20 minutes. You might have your own language, but there is something that you must look for. If on that card you have in any way pointed to who you are or what you have done, <coughs> I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is off the center. Because, ladies and gentlemen, your faith will not save you. Jesus Christ will save you. Only Jesus Christ will save you. I am relying not on my faith. Ladies and gentlemen, my faith is flawed. I have not believed enough. I have not repented sufficiently. If Jesus asked me to do anything perfectly, I would be lost. But what saves me is an objective, completed, finished work performed outside of me. And I embrace that by faith. The thing that saves me is what Jesus Christ did for me. That's all. No more, no less. Don't tamper. Don't add. That's it. My faith. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you've ever taken my systematics class, I, I, I try to pound this point home. 
the language that has been used over the centuries that is good language in uh, faith is called the instrument that's what faith is if you make it anything more than that you are guilty of fetism faith in faith and I say to you ladies and gentlemen your faith is flawed and it will never save you <coughs> but what will save you is Jesus Christ and that only gang you may think that a bit I don't know complex there is nothing nothing more thrilling than we when we as the people of God get our minds around that because guys do you ever struggle with assurance do you ever think oh well you know I just didn't repent enough I, you know I, <laughs> my repentance is it is I'll tell you it is you got terrible repentance just like mine but ladies and gentlemen I'm not saved based on my repentance and well, I, you know, I believe, but I don't have good faith, and you know, it's a small faith. Yeah, yeah, just like mine. But it is not the size of my faith that saves me, for heaven's sakes. It is the glorious, completed work of our Savior on our behalf. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our stronghold. When Satan comes to whisper something in your ear about how you have failed, yes, you have. The gospel of grace tells us that our failures are included in his work. I'm not, I, I certainly don't encourage failing. I, you know me better than that. But gang, we have got to get a, a grip on what is indeed this gospel of grace that we enjoy. And the gospel of grace centers upon Christ. 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 And more of Christ. Not how well or how poorly I believed. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, all of those things, all of those things are um, <coughs> part of the argument of Paul in Romans 2. All those questions I, I, I tried to derive from his arguments here. So if we want to avoid making the mistake of the Jew of the first century, we have got to be willing to examine ourselves in light of those mistakes and understand the brand of current mistake that is made. Those are <coughs> six of them. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the only deliverer, the only deliverer for any of us is the crucified Christ. That's enough for tonight. <coughs> um, if you need to get to a meeting or a <coughs> the choir, hmm. <coughs> <coughs> Father, um, your people glory in the gospel tonight. 
that it includes a Savior that did not do a partial work. You have, a, you have provided a Redeemer that has accomplished our salvation. That He has made us people of God because of what He finished at the cross. And I pray that more and more your people will learn how to enjoy grace. Not a gospel that calls upon them to perform and, and dance in your presence to get better and better and we'll be fine. But a gospel that calls us to rest. To rest in the finished work of Christ Jesus the Lord. And I pray, Father, that the more we learn about that marvelous work, the more you will see your people absolutely blossom as we respond in loving affection of our marvelous Savior. We pray tonight, of course, in his name. Amen. Thank you and good night. <clears throat>